Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson, and I am joined by Terry Robinson, and today we are going to talk about the Dream Speakers in another episode of Tomes of Magic. But before we do, uh, I thought it might be nice to cover some announcements, and also, Terry, how are you doing? I am doing fine. I was on the Midnight Express podcast to talk about the Wu Kang. And we talked for almost two and a half hours just about the Wu Kang because BK's discussion of the Hem Kasovak, where, they ta- where he takes 18 pages of material and talks about that for two hours, wasn't quite enough. But the key mistake I made was I forgot that Australian summertime and North American summertime do not occur at the same time. So I'm like, let's figure out a time to record. What'll be good? And I'm like, 9 p.m. your time sounds good. And I work backwards. I'm like, oh, I can wake up at that point. You're, you're in this portion. of blah, blah, blah. And then only later did I find out that I had agreed to wake up at 4.30 my time to have this recording. Oh, boy. It was so invigorating talking to another Mage the Ascension fan podcast. I know it's not entirely Mage the Ascension, but a good portion of it is that I was I was jumping and jiving through that entire episode, and it felt great until I then went to work afterwards, and I almost fell asleep <laughs> at my desk. But regardless, I got to talk about the Wu Kang some more. So that sounds awesome. Hey, you know, um, that reminds me, I was having a hard time this week because I kept looking at my calendar and it said February. I'm like, no, it, it, I found out it's not actually February. It's Mage Brewery. Yeah. <laughs> I found this out from our friends at uh, 307 RPG Podcast, where they are dedicating podcasts all this month, uh, once a week for Mage the Ascension. And so uh, Terry and I just couldn't stay out of it. We, we had to get in there and uh, we, I worked my way into one episode. Terry worked his way into another. Those are both broadcast now, available for everyone to hear, so you too can take part in Mage Brewery and hear some some sweet, sweet content about Mage the Ascension over uh, from our friends at 307 RPG Podcast. So hey, check it out. It's a lot of fun. I like the fact that the best overview of Mage that I have seen has been done by Mage the Podcast people, just not on Mage the Podcast. <laughs> so you you deliver what I can only describe as a TED Talk on Mage, where Adam and I have this conversational back and forth badinage where Adam's more familiar with a bunch of stuff and I'm more familiar with a bunch of stuff. But in general, we know we know Mage a lot. But like Adam went into this professorial, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop you some knowledge on Mage that was great to hear. If you need like a one hour summary of the game, especially if you've never heard it before or you want to have someone else be like, oh, this is what the game is about, yeah, check out the 307 RPG podcast on that. We'll include it in the show notes. Uh, sadly, Mage Brewery is a slightly shorter month than most of the others. So we will have to make up for that at some point by having a Mage Toberfest. So I think that should should help balance it out throughout <laughs> yeah, the year. Yeah, I, I second that. And also, uh, I went and listened to uh, Terry's episode, uh, Helping People Understand the Nine Spheres of Magic in Mage the Ascension. And it was awesome. He talked through the spheres. He talked about how you can make conjunctional effect by combining things, um, how they've been approached by uh, different players, some of the strengths, some of the shortcomings. It, it was just incredible. And so glad I heard it. And uh, I recommend it to all Mage fans. To finish up our announcements, uh, we got two more topics, actually. And one is I was working on a web app for a dice roller that would cover all different editions of Mage. And I was kind of, you know, experimenting around with that, asked for some feedback. And uh, I got some great feedback. Uh, A friend of ours on our Discord that goes by the name Forager basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, that's not how you make an interface. This is how you make an interface. (laughs) He showed me his and I said, okay, you're right. That is how you make an interface. That is really awesome. 
And so he is going to uh, take the Dice app and add extended roles to that to work out a, a few of the bugs and, and tweak it a little. And that's going to be the one we go with. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for Forager for all the effort he's put into not only a great Dice Roller app, but also a really nice interface that looks good on desktop computers and uh, mobile devices as well. And so, But uh, moving on, we have had a discussion on our Discord uh, well, actually, a lot of great discussions, but this one in particular was someone asked, hey, if, if you could add three new books to the Mage 20 lineup, well, what would you like to see? And so a great discussion around that. And Terry and I uh, just wanted to, to add a bit to that. And so, Terry, if you could add three books to the current Mage 20 lineup, what would those three books be? So I am going to start by breaking a presumption that is made in M20. So when White Wolf was purchased by Paradox, apparently the rules of things changed and we got the decree that you could no longer change metaplot really, except for a little bit of tinkering at the edges in the M20 line. A special exception was made for V20 to allow that to advance forward because V5 was going to be coming out. So part of the reason that all the game books are kind of this generic middle of the road thing is they were told to be. So with that in mind, the first one I want is a Beckett's Jihad Diary for Mage. So Beckett's Jihad Diary, I think is probably the best X20 book that was released. I think number two might be either the Changeling Player Guide or the Book of Oblivion. Those books are just so dense with good stuff. And what it does is it advances the meta plot of Vampire the Masquerade between the years of roughly like 2003, 2004, and like 2010 to 2015. It's kind of vague with dates, and it involves a lot of world hopping. It's very mechanic light, and all the chapters are broken into two sections. The first part of it is epistolary, like letters and notes and dialogue and recordings and little newspaper clippings and so on. And the second half is the, this is what's really going on for the storyteller section. It's a very well-made book, and if Mage were to get one, I think I would pop. For me, my proposal would be like Amanda Jensen's Ascension Diary or something like that. Just tell us what happened. How did the Avatar Storm wind down or how is it still going? Whatever happened with the House of Helicar? How did the uh, syndicate deal with the disappearance of the Special Projects Division? And how have relationships among the supernaturals changed? And, and all sorts of that stuff. It wouldn't be nearly as large as the vampire one, which you could use to like kill medium-sized home intruders, but, but something like that I would love. The other two, I would like a book of theater or operations level play. So most games tend to be tactical where you're either describing literally what your character is doing, where you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to place my weight on my left foot and with a square kick, try and hit him in the jaw and I get this bonus and so on to do that. Or strategic level where you're like, I attack him. And I am fine with either of those, as long as everyone else at the table is cool with that. Above that, you have uh, theater or operations level play. And at theater or operations level, you wouldn't be describing the, what your character did, except for in the broadest of strokes, like I'm going to research a cure to this mysterious virus that seems to be affecting the awakening. Or... Or you may describe what an entire chantry or cabal is doing, or what's happening in an entire city at once. And Birthright for D&D was a game that was released under second edition rules where you did that. You were not just the king of the kingdom, you were the kingdom. And you would break the year into seasons, and there were various things you could do. You could do build infrastructure and so on. And 
it had rules for how to advance your kingdom over time. And if you wanted to play traditional D&D, one of the things you could do in one of those seasons was go adventuring where you were the king or the prince or what have you, and you you slayed the dragon or you retrieved the gee whiz wand or whatever it is kids do today in, in Dungeons and Dragons. And I would love something similar for Mage because we don't really have good guidelines on like my character wants to shift the paradigm in this area over the next couple of years. Let's see how it goes. So uh, something that, that is on a little bit of a grander scale. I have secret hopes that Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic includes something about that on how to shift like reality zones or wide scale influence or steals the agenda system from Changeling. But that would be my number two. And finally, a, a Disparates book, quite simply. Many of the Disparates got a pretty heavy facelift in Revised to the point where they don't quite mesh up with what their 2E version is. And they're just isn't enough material to help a storyteller kind of sort out which one that they want. Like my favorite example is the hollow ones start out as they're just all orphans. And then in 2E, they kind of turn into punk goths. In Revise, they break down into this postmodernist group, this romantic group, and this gutter mage group. And in M20, they seem to mostly be goth postmoderns. And something that, that kind of presented more space there, I think would be helpful. And those are the three texts I would like. How about you, Adam? <laughs> uh, yeah, I did have uh, three picks. And uh, before I start, I, I just thought it was uh, very interesting, uh, your, your second pick about a more higher level approach to uh, playing in the setting of, of Mage the Ascension. Um, uh, for a lot of years, uh, in the fantasy gaming community has been a little more keyed into that. They call it domain level play. Oh, and in, in a lot of blogs and, and places online, uh, the, it, it's easier to discuss because it has a label agreed upon by everyone. And so in the past, there's been a, a couple of, not a lot, a, a few books and a few resources put out for domain level play in fantasy role playing. And it's something that is very interesting to me. I think it would be very interesting to see a book on that for Mage. But the problem is, from the mid-70s until today, it has always been more of a niche thing for, for role players. There are some people who like it and want it, and there are a lot of people who decide it's it's just not for them. And so I'm not surprised that we have not seen that for Mage. But if we did see that for Mage, I would buy it and, and try it with, with a group because I would be very excited about that. But okay, on to my three picks. I agree with uh, Terry that a book on the Disparate Alliance is uh, uh, would not only be something that I would like to see, but uh, yeah, it, it's just kind of expected. I mean, this new faction in Awakened Society was introduced in Mage 20 and, and certainly changed the landscape of the Ascension War. Lots of Mage fans would like to see this book published. Uh, my number two is on Marauders. Uh, I feel a statute of limitations on the first book of Madness has probably passed by now. This is a good time to add information and possibilities for a major faction in the Ascension War. I think storytellers often don't use marauders in their chronicles because they can't think of what to do with them. And last, in the days of second edition uh, Mage, there were uh, two or three mentions of a book that they were planning but never got published. It was called Mad Mask. Uh, this book on the Umbral Courts and other denizens of the High Umbra was promised, but we never saw it. It always seemed to be an important part of Mage, and I think it should finally get to see the light of day. Uh, I, I just think it'd be great to have a resource book on uh, not only the Umbral Courts, but also stuff in the High Umbra, just spirits that live in the High Umbra, not realms. So those are my picks. And of course, uh, the discussion on our Discord servers is ongoing. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, great ideas and, and uh, discussion there, so feel free to take part in that. 
discord.me slash mates the podcast that mad mass book sounds fascinating i'm actually working on a storyteller vault supplement that is for alternatives to the marauders so hopefully sometime within the next number of months that will be that will be out into the world well i think it's time to start talking about the dream speakers a tradition in the council of nine mystic traditions they have been in every edition of mage and uh, they have always been one of the traditions in the council of nine uh, this book was put out in 1997 and that was by jackie casada and nikki ria who have uh, been authors for a number of world of darkness books they were very versatile they, they worked in a number of game lines and, of course, there's no number on the spine because it is a uh, tradition book. This came out in second edition, but is the first book to fully uh, focus on the tradition of the dream speakers. I thought it would be great to have uh, Terry walk us through, uh, tell us uh, what are the sections in this book and what makes them interesting. Sure. The first section we have in the book is the introductory fiction. This book follows a single character joining the tradition and starts with dreams of steel and concrete where the lead character who appears to be a mohawk iron worker and we walk through this person slowly becoming aware that there is more and more out there gaining access to what is referred to as the dream as this old woman is slowly popping up in this person's presence the chapter ends with this character stepping off a girder into the void of nothingness and then in the next chapter they fall into their awakening and the art for it i thought was very well done depicting a person literally walking off a girder just in case you thought the text was ambiguous and we get the first real peek about how this book is going to focus on the tradition in the lexicon section under other terminology we get dreams dreams may refer to as visions maya the pathway of the mind the sleeping realm mo uhaine spirit visitations and waking sleep. And then after that, we get two more words, dream speakers and spirits. And in both of those cases, we get like 30 options that people can use to refer to the group. This will become kind of important later. We then go into the history chapter, which gives a background of it. And the way the history chapter talks about it is instead of saying this is what the dream speakers were before, it says this is what the groups that became the dream speakers were before. We get a passage of travelers through the dream time of how the uh, aboriginal peoples of Australia served their people and obeyed the dream time law. We get the dream priests of Africa, of the sub-Saharan region and their shamanic influence on the operations of their people. We get the warriors of the vision quest, which is about North America's indigenous peoples and as well as those across the Pacific islands. And it even does a call out to be like, yo, there are indigenous peoples kind of everywhere. And it makes mention of the Sami and the Tungu of Europe as indigenous peoples from those areas. And then it goes into what we would call, I guess you could say the tradition history of when the tradition formed. So the grand convocation call goes out and just about every awakened mage is in some way notified or some effort is made. And there was dim awareness that many of what would become the dream speakers all had access to the same realm, some something referred to as the dream or the shadow or the dream time or something like that. And that was used to contact people and gather people for the grand convocation. They all arrive at the Grand Convocation, the Council of the Nine, the rest of them kind of look at these people and are like, I 
I don't know what to do with you. And it's one of those things where the book talks about the the upside and downside of their organization, where they say, yeah, I guess we had some stuff in common. We generally believe in this kind of that the, the land is important to us and our magic comes from a similar place, but our practices and our presentation and our cultures are wildly different. And it says more or less the council shoved us together because they weren't sure what to do with us. And some of us were offended by that, but others thought it was made sense because we are all people who have dealt with battles with people who claim to be advocates for modernity and the harm that has caused to our cultures. It then goes through the burning times and the age of exploration and conquest as Europe kind of explores the globe and starts laying claims and talks about how indigenous practices had been destroyed or driven into hiding, how religion was a kind of a tool to implement a sense of global unity. And we first get the idea of a basic division that occurs within the dream speakers, which is to say, is it more important to preserve our people? As in, should we stand and fight those invading our lands and possibly die in defense of our people? Or is it more important to save our beliefs by departing from our people and trying to to save what we think makes our magic special. And this is referred to as the division within it. In the 20th century, it talks about how uh, the idea of Sigmund Freud wiping away dreams was injurious to their paradigm, but how Carl Jung and his idea of the collective unconsciousness kind of brought that back in because no mage book is complete without a reference to Jung. It talks about Marxism and the politics of materialism and how the idea that there is no spirit world being baked into so many world beliefs was also problematic. But again, this is part of the waves of books that says, but things have been different recently. Starting in the 60s, we had explorers at the edge of consciousness discovering the philosophies of Africa, of East Asia, of the Native Americas, and suddenly these forgotten ideas became cool. And the these ideas that have been thoroughly crushed by the technocrats and their allies are now getting new purchase. And once again, we have a book that says this group needs to figure out what it wants to do. Do we want to compromise and update our practices, or do we want to stick to as traditional as possible? Should we cast the net as wide as humanly possible to help as many people fight the Ascension War as possible, or is this fundamentally about cultural preservation? And that is kind of where the chapter on on history ends. Again, the, the big keystrokes is it outlines the the five or six different groups that contribute to the dream speakers, how they practiced since time immemorial, um, how, how to them magic was mostly a case of asking the earth to do what it's supposed to do, the rise of the gauntlet and how that affected their practice, how the grand convocation changed things, their uneasy alliance with other mage groups and how there are strict philosophical distant differences between those. And finally, this idea of hope through the 60s and 70s that people are understanding that the world is maybe bigger than at first they thought, and how is the tradition going to capitalize on that while hopefully defending any gains that it's made? So how did you find the history section, Adam? I thought there was a, a lot of good uh, material to uh, cover in the history section. I, I thought it was it was great to see it there, even bringing in some of the uh, more recent philosophical and, and kind of ideas like uh, Jung and uh, bringing that in and, and having the dream speakers kind of give their opinion on that was uh, made it much richer and, and more enjoyable to read. One thing that I was bothered by was this in this chapter and in other ones, they make mention of the celestial chorus being some kind of enemy that is not only moving against the dream speakers, but like doing it again and again. And it just seems so bizarre to me because it described not groups within the celestial course, but the entire celestial course as a tradition moving as one. And it also uh, depicted them trying to do things that are totally against everything that's been published about the celestial course. It's like, 
reading it, I got the impression it's like they made an imitation celestial chorus and then beat it repeatedly, and it just just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, some of the timing seemed kind of off, like they make mention of the celestial chorus still proselytizing heavily into the 16 and 1700s, where in the celestial chorus tradition book, it's kind of suggested that after the Battle of Mistridge or after the fall of Mistridge, that they go, oh, wait, maybe we need to be more unified and play nicer with other people. And it's certainly one of those where you can say, hey, the lay practitioners did it, or this was done in certain areas, but it, it is a very broad brush to paint with. But most of these books are from the tradition's perspective, and it's one of those cases where I do wish there was kind of that omniscient narrator saying this is what really happened because we get one recount in the Celestial Chorus book, we get a different recount here, and that happens a couple times in mage, mage history. But I can certainly see a, a dream speaker being like, oh, the Pacific Islands have been uh, taken over by Catholic missionaries. This is obviously the work of the Celestial Chorus, even if it's not necessarily the Celestial Chorus behind it. The culture and politics section talks about what are the actual common elements that the tradition has. They outline the shamanic journey, that at some point in a character's life, they will get a vision of what lies ahead. They will receive some sort of call that their avatar may awaken in a dramatic or a violent fashion, or otherwise, maybe it might be a literal call where someone says, hey, we need your help. There will be some sort of near-death experience or the brink of great loss. There will be a vision where there is then a spiritual stage that the character needs to go to. There will be a portion where they are accepted by the rest of the culture. They will be accepted by a guardian spirit. That one was... Okay. Where you have some sort of thing where the spirits of some group at least say, okay, we accept you. You learn the lore of that group and then you are now a full member. I liked this in that it kind of gave wide beats. You have the idea that your character will be informed by some sort of recurring dream, that uh, themes will periodically visit you. And this is something that is later codified with being, maybe this is something from the avatar, maybe this is something from something else. An outline of what does the seeking look like generally involves fasting and solitude and attuning one's mind and body. Temptation, what it looks like to say, to try and get a dream speaker to walk off the path to ascension that they're going on. And then finally, the idea of old age, death, and transcendence. And what I like is it addresses the question of what does ascension or becoming an oracle look like for this group? And they end the section with many choose to reincarnate instead, sending their avatar forward into the world to continue and refine their vision rather than choosing to ascend or becoming an oracle. And that's quite simply something that isn't addressed by a lot of the traditions, and I like that. I don't think we ever get a virtual adept definition of what ascension looks like. Granted, I think they were the first tradition book, so no one was quite sure what ascension was at the time, but I get it. And then we go to the the visions of the other world. They talk about the sub-realms within the Dreamspeaker Horizon Realm that preserve old ways of life and the different kind of arc cultures that are represented there. They talk about how the group meets, that they periodically have uh, calls within the spirit world, but also that they understand that having all the dream speakers in one spot doesn't always work out well, and how they use dreams as a way of moving material back and forth or ideas back and forth to keep everyone put together. We get an idea of what their 10th sphere is. In this case, it is Odu, and it is the sacred word, the sphere of naming. This was a little 
weird to me because initially they talk about how naming is something they avoid doing and naming has power and naming should only be done with full understanding. So making that the 10th sphere kind of was a little bit jarring to me, but I kind of see what they're going after. And then we get some ideas about how the group itself operates. We get an outline of how the avatar essences line up to different factions within it. And I thought this was interesting because this was a book where essence and faction are not tied, where they go over both of them. We also get the protocols that the things that the dream speakers are expected to do. Once a year, they generally have a get together in the Nevada desert. They talk about the importance of a family, the obligation to teach. And I liked that they specifically said, no, you need to pay your mentor. Also, don't sleep with them. Cultist of ecstasy, you're just being weird. I, I like that specific call out, as well as what dispute resolution would look like. They refer to their, their duel as the reckoning. We don't really get a lot of information for it, but it's suggested that it is not necessarily as lethal as Kurtamane or Kurtaman. We get an outline of what ranks kind of look like, and we get a long thing about factions. And we also get some of the rituals and festivals, which they outline as being something that is going to be contingent on region. The section ends with the idea of the great battle, that our greatest task is to bring a forward that redresses the wrongs done to our kin in the world and others. And this is interesting because earlier they indicate that the goal of ascension is to bring balance back to the interactions between humans and the spirit world. And I can see these two visions, the great battle versus ascension, pointing in the same direction, but sometimes they really feel to work at cross purposes. So how did you find this chapter? I also thought the Tenth Sphere of Odu seemed odd. It, it seemed kind of out of place. It seemed like a, a lot of dream speakers would be the people who are less enthusiastic about even discussing the idea of dividing magic up into nine discrete, well-labeled boxes and then postulating about a, a tenth one. And then also, yeah, like what you said, uh, to have it be about uh, like sacred naming when they had these beliefs discussed mm -hmm. in the book about naming. It just seemed out of place, and, and I've never talked to a mage fan who has pursued that in their chronicles, and, say, and I can understand why. Um, also, I really liked the discussion on uh, the oracles. Mm -hmm. It's like most of these most of these second edition books will say, oh yeah, the oracles, uh, they might not be real, and even if they are, we know nothing about them here. It's like, no, some of us become oracles, and, and this is what we think about that. I, I thought that was just so cool. I, I loved it. Also, this chapter may present a greater structure for the dream speakers than many storytellers are, are going to want to use. The there has been material published on the Dream Speakers, although brief, uh, two times before this, and it seemed to indicate that there was very, very little structure for this group. So by the time this book was put out in 97, there had been storytellers running with the Dream Speakers for about like four years already. And so I can understand if they would want less structure and cohesion than what we get in this chapter, but I'm not necessarily against it. The next chapter is Beyond the Dream or External Relations, and it goes through how the Dream Speakers interface with other groups and it kind of cuts a wide swath through them and it kind of divides it into these are the traditions we get along with and those are the verbena the cultists of ecstasy and the euthanatos and i thought the inclusion of the euthanatos in there was interesting and then it refers to the groups they 
don't necessarily go get along with, which are all the others. It also talks about some of the crafts that they have cordial relations with and brings up a particular thing that Adam brought up in our episode on the Book of Crafts, where you have the Kopaloe and the Bata'a. And Adam's comment was, you figure the dream speakers would get along with these people and they would have something to do to help each other. They have similar practices or they've had similar experiences. And the dream speaker book here specifically points out that the Kopaloe and the Bata'a cause trespassers on our native land. Uh, sometimes we fight, but as a rule, we stay on our own roles. And I like that they specifically address that. They said, hey, we've tried to do that. And they refer to the hollow ones as mysterious figures that make trouble in the shadows, which I think is a, a good summary for a, a fair chunk of the hollow ones. And one of the <laughs> things I like about this book is the way some of the other groups are summarized, I think are particularly well done. They talk about then the technocracy. The cleverest monkeys of all have captured reality and placed it in a museum where it dances to their tune. The vitriol that drips from that. <laughs> I very much like the way they refer to the progenitors as the society of the twisted serpent. I'm like, man, I wish I could come up with like jabs and insults of that of that level. And it kind of works the way you expected. Uh, the dream speakers have kind of been on the short end of the stick to just about every convention. Then it moves on to the Marauders, where they say we cannot fully condemn the mad. So we know the ways of the crazy prophet, but maybe they're a little too crazy, uh, which makes sense. They talk about the Nefandi and refer to them as those who have given themselves to inner darkness or those who mock the dream or are on the path of nightmares. And again, very little ambiguity. Kill them. Nice. I like when they're <laughs> simple, easy to follow directions. Then they go into the other creatures that are in the world of darkness. They talk about the changing breeds, how they generally get along with the Bestet, the Korax, the Garu, the Garal, the Macaulay, the Noesha, which is werecats, were ravens, were wolves, were bears, go were bears, were lizards of some sort, and were coyotes. And it talks about how. They, again, they generally have cordial relationships. I thought this was a little overly broad. To me, this is a section where it feels like you would probably be on good terms with the Garal if you were from a culture that had positive um, shamanic associations with bears. To everyone else, they're 17-foot-tall murder machines. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that you're on good relationships. Right, that was a little bit broad but I'm glad they brought it up. Of groups that can interact with shapeshifters, it made sense that the dream speaker would be one that had slightly more information about it. They talk about the interactions that they have with the changelings and specifically the Nunahi, the changelings of the indigenous people of North America. And then finally, they talk about spirits in a fair amount of detail. And this section I thought was pretty well done, where it goes over when... Dream speakers interface with spirits. They break them down into categories. They talk about nature spirits, plant and animal spirits, the spirits of past humans, the spirits of time. This is the second time that zeitgeists are mentioned as part of the game outside of the Cultists of Ecstasy book. Uh, the idea of totem spirits or ur spirits that represent all things of a particular form. Paradox spirits, where they have an amazing line, reality has its own dream. Paradox spirits are its nightmares which I just kind of liked. And then finally, dream spirits. They also talk about spirits specifically of the weaver, worm, and wild. And of the groups that would specifically say weaver, worm, and wild, I feel like the dream speakers are one and I didn't really have a problem with that. And then finally, the epiphlings, the, the spirits of very strong feelings. Finally, we get a idea of how they interact with sleepers, that what is their goal? It, again, is it to be led? Is it to be protected? Is their goal to walk away and 
preserve their culture until things change and they can be more more accepted. But the big thing is that it is all dreams need to be taken into consideration, even for those who do not realize what they are doing. We get a little bit more information about Michael, the lead character's path to awakening, and then the chapter ends. So how, how did you find external relations? Yeah, I, I thought it was good. I thought some, a lot of good material was covered here. I really liked the part of the chapter where they talk about how the dream speakers have a, a somewhat idealized view of the were creatures uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that exist in the world. I thought it was really cool that the dream speakers would look at these were creatures and say, "Hey, these creatures are part physical beings from the earth and and part." spirits from the umbra kind of combined into one thing and uh, we see this as a living representation of how things used to be in the distant distant past and so we think that's like a viable link to this idealized view we have of the past and so this kind of respected idealized view they have of the were creatures made a lot of sense to me and it it seemed like a really cool idea to bring into chronicles Uh, i also liked showing how they have some difference in outlook uh with uh some of the groups that they often ally with in in council of nine meetings Uh, it it says in in many different uh, second edition books that the dream speakers find common cause with uh verbena cultists of ecstasy and the euthanatos and i thought it was it was appropriate here to call out how even though they find a lot of common cause, large numbers of dream speakers look at their allies in the cult of ecstasy. And they say, look, the the way you conduct your romantic lives, that that really runs against our values and our our cultural way of doing things. And and it's not just something that we gloss over and say, well, that's cool. It's like, no, we we really think that's not a good way to live. And that causes us to want to to keep a little distance from you at times. We don't want our apprentices watching your apprentices and saying, (laughs) oh, I'll do that too. It's like, no, we don't want that. Yeah. And, and also they look at the verbena and it's like the verbena's approach to, you know, practicing magic. And they say, well, hold on. That, that's not just another way of looking at things. That That is a specific way of looking at things that, that, that we don't like. We call that sorcery and, and, you know, pulling magic into your own hands to follow your own agenda instead of caring about the, the tribe, the people that you come from or the earth that you live on. And uh, we, we really think that's not okay. And so even though we ally with the verbena, we find common cause with them. Still, we, we look at them at times and think, boy, they're doing some stuff that we think is, is really not good, and we want to keep a little distance here. So that was brought up in this chapter, and it, it was appropriate. It made sense, and I think it can add some richness to Chronicles. Yeah, it reminds me of the Testament of the First Cabal, where Walking Hawk is talking about meeting Nightshade, and is like, I recognize that she and I are praying to the same spirit, but her version of it seems to be much thirstier for human blood. And I'm like... That's nice. And it's good. I I like any time we get something longer than the one sentence stereotype that we get in like a core rule book, but shorter than like, and another thing, this guy double parked and he stole my lawn chair and never gave it back. They're like, now you're, that's a little bit too much. Now I appreciate that you're (laughs) angry, but we're getting a little bit too much into the weeds on this. Yeah. The next section we have is speakers of the sacred tongue, which are characters. And this I like because it gave three different character templates that you could play. There is a horror story that I think Dixie Cochran tells of attempting to play mage and the the plot's going and they get to this point and the dream speaker character in the group refuses to step onto a plane because they're like, 
planes are the tool of the technocracy. This is just representing our subjugation to these machines. I refuse to get on it. And the plot just fell apart because a character like was leaning into something too hard. And like every time someone talks about how important it is to role play your paradigm to the to the tilt, I kind of think of that story and go, but is it though? And there are two ways to deal with that. You bend your paradigm or you make sure you have a paradigm that plays well with others. And I think the examples we got here in the character templates are good examples of that. You have the inner city spirit doctor, you have the techno shaman, and then you have the dream therapist. And I think all of them are well put together and reasonable starting points. Like I wouldn't feel bad handing a character a player, one of these templates and say, start with this, maybe shift some dots around if you want to do this and you're not entirely sure how to do this. Some of the dot choices I think are meh, but I, I think they were generally good. The The second half of that chapter, we get some sample characters. We get Star of Eagles. We get Nyoba, who are two characters that eventually got married during the time of the Grand Convocation, and their union is kind of indicated as being what brought the Dream Speakers together. We get Walking Hawk, again, another member from the time of the First Cabal, and then we get a few other characters. We get Adambara and Painted Horse, who are two indigenous activists, uh, one who works with the Dreamtime, the other one who works in North America and across the Afro-Caribbean. And those were interesting. And I guess my only real criticism of this section is I would have liked something between the two, where we have three characters that are introduced who were there at the time of the First Cabal, and then we have two characters that are contemporary. This is a group that is more distant from my understanding, so a case where I would have liked a few more examples to work from because as I read through the section on Painted Horse, who is a contrary entertainer and being like, oh, when this character takes on paradox, it is in the form of wild colored to their hair, which fits in with this character's appearance, but this person would be unable to change that color. It couldn't be dyed out or if they cut it, it would grow back that way. And, and I think that is flavorful and it is useful as a way of showing this is how this paradigm embraces paradox or deals with the modern world. And I just would have liked a few more of those. The character templates kind of take on Dreamspeak in modernity, but again, I feel like this is a group that's going to be more distant from most people's experience and a little bit more information on that I would have found helpful. How about you, boss? There was some good material in the character section. The material on Nyoba and uh, her partner, I, I thought that was good for, for history that, that uh, characters can lean into if they want to. My criticism would be when talking about both uh, the characters Adam Barra and Painted Horse, it said that the technocracy was like fanatical in its devotion to oppose them at every turn and wipe the, at every turn and wipe them out. And, and they were so terrified that every time Adam Barra or Painted Horse uh, speaks in public that it's going to break their paradigm or something. I was reading through it. It's like, I don't I don't get this. Okay. Adam Barra gives talks on ecology and Painted Horse gives stage performances. It's like, why would the technocracy care? It, it seems like the technocracy <laughs> would just say, oh, that's nice, whatever. <laughs> but the, the authors of the book felt very strongly that the technocracy were, were uh, fanatical about trying to rub them out. And I, I didn't get that. But hey, you know, my understanding is limited. I'll, I'll admit that. I, I'm not going to get upset if people call me out on that. <laughs> I, I do feel like it's one of those things where you have the core writers for the Mage of the Ascension line, and it's obvious, or at least it feels obvious to me, to watch Brucato's thinking change as we go through second edition. 
to, to, to watch that migration from very one E view of the world to a two E view of the world. Sometimes a book has a section or an area that was done by someone who maybe hadn't written for mage recently or before. And I feel like those people were still heavily influenced by what they had heard about mage from first edition. And some of that creeps its way in. And that, that section on like, Oh, you crazy dream speaker. Um, or like, we're going to try and shut down every one of your performances felt, felt very one E to me. Yeah, it did. It yeah, did. yeah. I, I think you're right. I think there's a number of people who've been writing for Mage. Uh, I think certainly in the first two editions, who either didn't know much about the game or they had kind of heard some about it yeah. from someone else, and then they said, "Okay, fine, I'm going to start writing." And it seems like the the different developers for Mage at times they have wanted to encourage freedom and creativity from the people contributing to the line, but uh, perhaps sometimes they went a little too far and gave them a little too much freedom. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it is hard for me to step back into what it was probably like to write in the 90s, where if you're not in the office, as it were, like you don't have access to all the mage books. There isn't like a PDF that anyone sends you to do it. So you're like, oh, I'm going to. okay. well, this is the core rule book I have. This is what I've heard about it. I'm going to ask my friend Jim, who plays a bunch, and then we'll go from there, which results in kind of a mishmash as opposed to now where we have the glories of the White Wolf Wiki plus drive through RPG, where it's like, hey, can you send me a free copy of this book? I need to do an update on the Hermetics or what have you. The, the final chapter we have is Inside the Dream Wheel, which is Dream Speaker Magic. And it walks through the spheres uh, and their interpretation of them. This is, again, one of those cases where it gives different reflections of different groups and how different I guess you could say factions within the Dream Speaker approach these individual spheres. We get a few recommendations for foci, which are pretty straightforward. One of the things that is interesting is it does mention that Dream Speakers are slightly more likely to have familiars and totems compared to other groups. And they even make mention of, hey, if you're looking for more information on this, see Werewolf. And one of the books they mention is Axis Mundi, which is a werewolf mage supplement i'd say it's mostly werewolf that adam and i will be talking about we will uh, at some point as well as the idea of dream walking their ability to enter the dream realms and move around within them and finally the vision the idea that awakening always takes the form of a dream or a vision that echoes throughout the rest of the character's life and i like the idea of having that thing that is something that is going to be constant across a character's awakened life. There will always be echoes of that going through. Now, that does kind of present traditions as this preordained thing. Like if someone has, we get stories of characters who've moved back and forth across traditions as their paradigm or their understanding of themselves has changed. When you say that all dream speakers have this thing, I feel like it kind of complicates that idea. And then finally, we get a few rotes. And the rotes make sense. We get about six of them. There's nothing really groundbreaking on them. But again, this draws in a whole bunch of different belief sets and how magic looks to them, which again, probably not as useful as a more unified tradition where practice kind of looks the same. And you can probably take a rote from one person and, and any other tradition member could likely use that here is kind of presented as well. This group within the dream speakers use this. Maybe this is generic. Maybe it's very specific to a cultural practice. And then finally we get recommended reading. And it's, it's a pretty long list. I remember encountering a few of these, Black Elk Speaks, Crying for the Dream, and Voices of the First Day as being the things that I had encountered before or found and flipped through after seeing them reference to it. And then finally, we get our four-page character sheet. So what did you think about Dream Speaker Magic? 
I liked how they made the distinction between what dream speakers consider medicine and what uh, dream speakers consider to be sorcery. I, I thought it, it was nice to kind of call that out and help uh, mage fans kind of clue in on that. I think it can be useful to storytellers is why I bring this up. Medicine is, is basically magic with the uh, appropriate mindset used for the appropriate means and sorcery is uh, selfish selfish goals, um, learning magic so that you can use it for yourself and, and doing things that you want to do rather than things that are good for everyone involved. So I liked that. When I was reading through this, I noticed the word medicine used a lot, and that made me think back to how the term medicine kind of came into the English language as an alternative term for magic. This was back uh, quite a while ago when anthropologists were starting to learn more about indigenous cultures of other continents, and they were coming back to Europe and, I guess, North America and, and trying to help people understand what they were learning about these other people groups. And the impression I really got about this time was that these anthropologists were seeing that these other you know, people on other continents were using magic to do things, but they were concerned that when they came back and told Europeans about it, that they would think, oh, oh no, witchcraft. And, and they were trying to say, no, no, th these people are actually, they're, they're trying to do good things with their magic. They're not trying to curse people and, uh, you know, follow the devil or, or make themselves rich, like the old European stories about uh, more, you know, male upper-class wizards. They weren't trying to curse people, they were trying to make themselves rich so that they could pursue their own selfish pleasures. But they were saying, look, some of these other places is that illness in people is caused by the influence of evil spirits or, you know, spirits that have been angered and, and need to be placated. And so they use their magic to get in touch with the spirits and either drive out the bad spirits or make the good spirits happy so they won't be angry anymore. And the net result of this is the people who are sick get healthy again. And so they, that's where we get these really old terms like a witch doctor and medicine man, which, you know, I, I agree that these are not the greatest terms to be throwing about casually these days. But back when those terms started, I, I think it was trying to help people understand that, hey, you know, these people practice magic, but they're not up to no good. They're, they're actually trying to do good things with their magic. So please mm -hmm. be understanding. That's the term we get medicine for magic. It's like using magic to try and make people healthy again instead of trying to use, you know, understanding of, of herbs or, or chemicals to make people healthy again. So I like that they that they called that out. Um, I like the werewolf totems. They put werewolf totems in this Dream Speaker Magic uh, chapter, and I, I thought it was cool. Uh, I thought it was neat that the Dream Speakers would interact with these powerful spirits in the Middle Umbra that traditionally have more to do with were-creatures. But when the Dream Speakers approach them properly and say, hey, look, I, I understand the old ways, and I'm, I'm responsible with my magic, and I'm trying to heal the earth, etc., and I think it, it's kind of cool that some of those totem spirits would say, oh, well, you're not a were-creature, but yes, you are powerful enough to talk to and you are trying to do good things. And so I think we can have uh, some sort of agreement, but not necessarily the same kind of agreement that I have with the were-creature. So I like that. I didn't like the uh, the section. They had like two paragraphs or so on dreamwalking. Mm -hmm. It was saying dreamwalking is a uh, magical ability that uh, dream speakers have and no other mages have. And they can they can physically or bodily walk into the, the dream zone or Maya, the dreaming. And no other mage can do this. And um, it, it says that only dream speakers who awakened and first joined the dream speakers get this ability. And if they leave the dream speakers and go to any other faction, 
then they lose this ability. And I thought, that's too restrictive. I, I don't necessarily think it makes sense to me as a storyteller. So I, I don't think I'd, I'd go with that. Uh, not how they write it up, anyways. Also, every single rote in the rote section, every single one involved the spirit sphere. It's like, okay, I, I know I know the dream speakers specialize in spirit and they take it very seriously, but to have every single rote have the spirit sphere in it, it seemed a little odd to me. I'm not necessarily complaining. It, it just seemed a little wonky, but that's just me. And that's one of those things where the idea of how should paradigm affect magic requirements, there are certainly different camps for that. Now, w one of the terms that I've heard used before is the idea of paradigm spirits, that even if you feel that you control forces by influencing spirits, you don't need the spirit sphere to do that conversation to convince a fire elemental to join or awaken the heart of a volcano or something like that. That's why you have the forces sphere. And it just yeah. so happens that that conversation is part of it. I understand that people don't. And I think it was complicated in M20 with the a bit of spirit aside where it's like, oh, by the way, spirit too may be required for literally everything you do. And I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah I, w I was the same way that I can understand someone who's not super familiar with the game saying, oh, no, they're talking to a spirit or this involves a spirit. Thus, the spirit sphere needs to be involved with it. I was going to take a few minutes and talk about factions within the Dream Speakers. They, they call them factions, which can be a bit confusing because for me, the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions could be thought of as a faction of mages. The Dream Speakers could be called a faction of mages, and the subgroups inside the Dream Speakers can also be called factions of mages. But I, I think our, our listeners basically understand that every tradition has subgroups within it, often with different names, terms used to describe the subgroups. And this is uh, certainly the case with the Dream Speaker Tradition book. Uh, all of the factions listed here are mentioned for the first time in this book. They were not discussed previous to this, so, so they're all new. Uh, we have the Keepers of the Sacred Fire. This is a group of Dream Speakers that work to preserve traditional cultures and even bygone creatures, and they preserve them by smuggling them to a horizon realm called, I think it's Nija Pond, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce that, but within this horizon realm, they have actually different sections and uh, they, they want to continue and, and relive the past. And as a mage fan, I, I thought this was could be a little problematic. Uh, you know, the old expression, don't put all your eggs in one basket. If the uh, tr technocracy decides to go after the nodes supporting this horizon realm, then the Horizon Realm would start to break up and all of the people and bygones living within it would be in a whole lot of trouble in a very short period of time. Now, next we have the Solitaries, and, and this, again, is more of a philosophy than an actual coherent group. Uh, these are individuals who live separated from the modern world and encourage others to do the same. They often shun technology. Next, we have the Ghost Wheel Society. These are basically modern techno-shamans. I thought this was pretty cool. They oppose the technocracy directly and work to build relationships with these new techno-spirits, which a lot of the more traditional thinking dream speakers uh, don't have relationships with and, and aren't a little unsure of. Now, it says that the Ghost Wheel Society is unpopular inside the dream speakers because they pursue new thinking as opposed to old thinking. And so I thought that was an interesting dynamic. Uh, next, we have the Red Spears. These are really extremists who don't recognize the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions. They fight against modern society with actual violence. And this is a real problem for the dream speakers. There are probably a lot of dream speakers who think, um, you know, maybe we should drive these guys out and others who say, no, we appreciate their passion and we, 
we, we're glad that they're in here. And so there are other traditions in the Council of Nine who go to the dream speakers and say, hey, these red spirits, can you do something about this? And the dream speakers say, well, um, we're rather undecided what to do about yeah. the dream <laughs> so, But moving on, we've got the four winds. Now, this is a group that spend a lot of time in the Umbra and learn a lot about it. They are a great source of information about the Umbra. However, a lot of its members move to the Umbra and don't leave it and feel that this is somehow more in touch with how things are supposed to be. And it says that many of them become Umbra. They become Umbral spirits and are no longer truly human beings. So an interesting group there, especially if you want to do more with the Umbra. We have the Baruti. These are historians and storytellers. Uh, they travel around a lot. They teach many people, not only other dream speakers, but sleepers uh, who are willing to listen as well. And I thought this was really cool because it kind of draws a line to a, a similar group in the Verbena that uh, are described in the Verbena tradition book as, as like bards. They are not only entertainers, but they are also historians, record keepers, storytellers. And so they have that dual role, which, which is interesting. Now, let's wrap it up with the contraries. These are people who are very contrary. They basically, they oppose a lot of very fundamental um, ideas and, and aspects of, of how people live their lives. And they want to challenge preconceptions. They believe that new thinking and new ideas comes from challenging the most fundamental preconceptions that we have. And so they do, uh, it describes things that many people would think of as comical. For example, always walking backwards or always trying to speak backwards or always doing certain things that that, that annoy people and, and, and grabs their attention. And it's trying to help people make a breakthrough. They're not trying to annoy people. However, you may meet some mages who think they're trying to annoy people. So some people may have fun with this group. And storytellers, be careful. Storyteller, some of your players may latch on to this group and use it as a uh, bad stereotype. Uh, storyteller, beware. I like the fact that as we go into second edition, we get so many more groups within each of the traditions. Yeah, very cool. And it is useful because when you're reading the other books and they bring up a stereotype, you can be like, oh, yeah, that is true of this particular group. Yes, the Gabrielites are like that, but not the rest of the tradition. Or that, yes, the Red Spears are particularly violent, but the rest of the group isn't. And it gives, yeah. and Mage is at its best when it's discussing contrastive ideas, in my opinion, and personal stories, where you may have within a tradition, like, for instance, when we were talking about the cultures of ecstasy, there's that one group where they're like, they take this stuff to extreme. Some people would claim they're Nefandi. And each each of these groups is so broad that there is even things within them where one end of the one group of dream speakers may, may not necessarily even be cool with what another group of dream speakers is doing. And the fact that they brought that into the writing, I appreciate having that kind of breadth to play with as a storyteller to, to kind of be like, even within every tradition, it's kind of a microcosm of the Ascension War. Yeah, a good tradition book is supposed to not only help people who are playing a character that is part of that tradition, but also to give ideas to storytellers that even if you don't have any players in these groups, uh, you can you know bring some NPCs into your chronicle and do some interesting things with this tradition, perhaps even help your players see them in a different light. And it's really cool to get this kind of material. So I think at this point, it's time to discuss Dream Speakers, uh, the book as a whole and Dream Speakers as a tradition. And I have said two or three times in past episodes of this podcast that the Dream Speakers started out uh, quite different than the dream speakers that we see in most of the published mage books. And I said, but I'll talk about that later. 
this is that time. Later has arrived. It has arrived. <laughs> uh, in 1993, the uh, Mage First Edition core book came out, and it uh, presented to us Dream Speaker tradition, which is quite different from the ones that most Mage fans know and love. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it is quite different. And I think it's interesting just to, to call it out and present it to people as an option. On pages uh, 122 and uh, page uh, starting on page 103 in the first edition Mage Core book, we are given two sections that tell us more about Dream Speakers. And uh, long story short, uh, they were a very, very unstructured tradition. They were individuals who were called by some spirit, some voice, some entity that called itself Gaia and said, um, I'm, I'm calling you to be one of the dream speakers. This is a group that furthers my goals. It, it supports my interests and uh, does things that, uh, that I need done. Gaia identified itself as this uh, very great and powerful distant uh, umbrood that represented planet Earth. It was the Earth, the great Earth Mother that was even apart from and above all the different uh, sleeper stories and traditions about the Earth Mother. And uh, this voice would call any given individual. It could be a member of an indigenous people group. It could be uh, a black guy from the Bronx who had a rough upbringing. It could be a, a sheltered white boy from a Chicago suburb. It could be any person. And they said, I'm calling you to be a dream speaker and learn more about my traditional Earth Mother ways and, and do the things that I need done. And what the dream speakers were was a very much like a tribe of people. And they had tribal ways. They, they had an outlook on life and a way of living that mapped well to, you know, basically Native Americans or traditional African tribal groups or, you know, Polynesians, basically indigenous people groups all around the world. But they were a separate new tribe. They did not have a strong connection to any existing real world um, indigenous people group. And so because it was this new yet old kind of tribal sort of group, there was a lot of room there for players and storytellers to build up this new tribe in, in any way that they liked. But it was just interesting that it wasn't really made up of people from indigenous people groups. It was made up of any given person and together they made a new sort of indigenous people group and some people they thought that idea was very interesting other people thought it was it was odd or, or perhaps even inappropriate and so in the book of chantries which had a number three on the spine came out in 1993 uh, at that point uh, Ricardo was the line developer and he wanted to do something different with dream speakers he said i want the dream speakers to be the groups of will workers that actually come from indigenous people groups around the globe that during the great convocation when the council of nine mystic traditions was formed they were kind of pushed together by the other traditions and said you really ought to be a tradition and so this was a very different take on the dream speakers but this is what we see in most of first edition in second edition and carrying on into the future of mage and it has been quite uh, popular with mage fans and so even though i think the original dream speakers are quite interesting i'd, li I'd like to play with them as a storyteller in, in a chronicle sometime but in my own chronicles that i have actually run for players uh, i've used the the newer approach to dream speakers it's, it's more comfortable for most mage players it's more familiar and i certainly don't have a problem with it in 1e it starts with the premise that mages again as as you've pointed out before and i didn't realize it until you pointed out 1e says that mages kind of have their own history and they have been secretly 
actually leading and influencing mortal culture throughout the eons. In 1E, it is mortals who inspire, who are inspired by mages. They make specific reference, for instance, the Euthanatoi are listed as being the inspiration behind the idea of reincarnation, that the mortal practice is the pale imitation of it. And for the first edition dream speakers, it is these people who have been called to Gaia, who've become nucleation sites for, for their community, where in 2E, it is reversed, where the yeah. culture comes first, and then what are the magical practices based on it? Both mm-hmm. are legit, but... yeah. Yeah, I think both are, are very interesting and, and can add a lot to your chronicle. So I, I certainly don't say that one is better than the other. But I, I just, for me personally, I think it's interesting that I lo- talked to a lot of mage fans and it's like they, they actually haven't heard about the original yeah. Dream Speaker. They don't even know that it's an option to them. So one of the things I like to do with this podcast is just to march through the books, lay everything out to people and say, look, make your own choices for your chronicle, but please look at the available options before you make your choices. Mm-hmm. So that, that's That's my thing. It was interesting to note in early first edition, the Celestial Chorus and the Dream Speakers were both portrayed as being very melancholy traditions because they both saw a world that has moved so far away from the world they knew that they wonder if they even have a future at all. So I, I thought that was, it was something that they were playing with in early first tradition and was not uh, revisited uh, very much after that. Speaking about this book in general, personally, I was a bit disappointed to see uh, mentions of the Dream Speakers making Horizon Realms and and trying to accomplish their own goals inside those Horizon Realms because my own thinking was I see the Dream Speakers as being a group of people that would look at Horizon Realms and see this as a new thing that sorcerers are doing with their magic and seeing Horizon Realms as being like artificial because from you know a dream seeker's point of view being the mages that they are they can look at naturally occurring umbral realms and say there is nothing people can do to stop these realms from existing they can't be destroyed they're mm-hmm. always going to be there but horizon realms if you if the technocracy moves in shuts off their nodes that horizon realm will cease to be it will be destroyed completely erased and so i can see dream speakers looking at horizon realms saying okay you mages are doing that and i guess that's fine but those are artificial they are man-made, they are um, fragile, and we dream speakers have a very, very old world way of approaching things, and we're just not so sure that we want to make those and put all our eggs in that basket. Yeah, I feel like that could have also been a case that if you had non-mage developers, they may not have been familiar with the nuanced difference between like what makes a horizon realm a horizon realm versus an umbral realm. So either of those. But I think that's an interesting way of explaining it, of being like, yeah, we've seen horizon realms fall before. This is literally the last of this particular umbrood. We're we're not going to risk it. We're going to find a place that is much more stable in in the middle umbra or something like that. But I I think that's a, a valid way and an interesting way to explain it that sums it up well uh, i'm not saying you have to portray dream speakers that way please everybody do what you want in your own games but it's just i can understand how dream speakers would have that point of view and that's all i'm saying and it's a, a good point of contrast where you can have two dream speakers that would disagree on that and, yeah. and 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 one of the big things is do we stay and fight or do we take our culture and leave to preserve the culture and you can view that in a thousand different ways with does the mage themselves stay with their group or do they travel the wider world do we keep the umbrood here and try and keep it attached to the people whose belief power it or do we take it to somewhere that is safer but remove that magic from the world do we try and find a umbral realm that will be safe for this creature or do we make our own horizon realm and I think it's just a lot of recursion of that theme. 
Also, uh, one thing that I was thinking about, I guess sort of in the back of my mind as I read through this whole book, was uh, many uh, indigenous people groups in, in their culture, they, they don't have a strong distinction between the world of the dead and the world of the spirits of the land, like the, the spirit of the lake, the spirit of the forest, the spirit of the bear, and then the spirit of my own departed ancestors. They, in, in many indigenous people groups and their, their myths and stories, it seems like there's one spirit world where all of these things exist. And the world of darkness, as it is created in the, in the five pillar games, uh, World of Darkness does make a distinction between where the dead people go and where the spirits of the land go. The dead people go to the low umbra and the spirits of the land, the spirit of the bear, the spirit of the lake, whatever, they're going to be in the middle umbra. And so it, it makes sense that, that you know, sleeper groups, uh, sleeper traditions would say, you know, we, we don't understand this distinction because what do sleepers know in the World of Darkness? But uh, the dream speakers would be the people who have actually gone to the different uh, levels of the umbra and they actually see this difference between where the dead people go and where the spirit of the bear goes it seems kind of appropriate for dream speakers to be these people who would say yes i know my my culture my tribal people group believe this but i know the truth and so i i stand a bit apart from that and and i didn't see this vibe in the book very much and that is one of those interesting things where part of it is the fact that the land of the dead, as it were, is only part of the picture. That is only people who died who kind of had something keeping them around. We, we don't get the sense that literally everyone is in the underworld. And when we were going through the Book of Worlds, we have the afterworlds in the Umbra, where that is technically in the high Umbra, and there seem to be what appears to be heavens or hells there. So I could certainly see it as being consistent that, yes, this quote-unquote low umbra is a place of darkness for people who still have things to work out. But in our belief set that when you die, if you don't come back as a normal, if you don't get normally reincarnated or if your avatar is not recycled, uh, maybe you go to the middle umbra or maybe you merge with some sort of reflection of your ancestral lands in the penumbra. And I'm fine with that. But yeah, it's one of those things where it points out the difference of, well, we need a consistent cosmology so everyone can play well together. But the downside of that consistent cosmology is that means that these beliefs almost by definition have to be wrong unless you want to create a kludge as a storyteller. And I'm, I, I guess I'm fine with either of those. Um, yeah. One of the things I've always found about uh, interesting about the world of darkness is that all the different uh, character in uh, player characters in the world of darkness, there are people who sort of step through the veil and they've uh, learned more about this wider, you know, mystical world, and they've learned that their traditional ideas and notions, um, some of them are right, and some of them are wrong, and some of them are half true. And, and that's what made the world of darkness so interesting to me. It's like they made, you know, people who become vampires, they realize, oh, these old superstitions about vampires are right, but these other superstitions about vampires are just wrong. Yeah. And so good, I, good luck I, with I, that garlic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. And so I, I think it's just really interesting, this whole notion of, of a, you know, a player character, a fictional person awakening to magic and realizing, oh my gosh, there's so many of the things that I thought were right are actually wrong. And so I, I see this really interesting dynamic of having a dream speaker mage who says, yes, I was raised in my tribe and I learned all these things. Some of them are right and some of them are wrong. And that puts a little bit of you know, distance, you know, metaphorically speaking, mm -hmm. between my tribe members and me. It's like, yes, I'm a part of that tribe. I sit there with the, you know, the ceremonies and the rites. 
And some of this stuff I don't believe in. Oh, yeah. And I guess my overall thoughts on the book. One, I thought the book was very well written. Just literally how the words on the page next to each other flow, I found it very easy to read. There were a lot of non-English words that were a little bit hard for me to pronounce in my head. But I, I just think it's, it is well written in a writerly or narrative sense. I thought the frame narrative of Michael made sense. And I think the book needed to be presented differently than the others by saying, we are the dream speakers, but we come from so many different backgrounds that we need to do a lot of work to show you five different views of the same thing. And we're going to say that the things that we share in as an idea are going to be pretty tight and pretty small. That I liked. The things I, I, I didn't like, I guess, were the, it did feel 1A at times, like the, the Celestial Chorus did this and they're, they're assholes because of it, or the, the Order of Hermes is terrible for the following reasons. And you're like, yeah, sure. But I, I felt like it was a, a bit too flippant. Some of the other tradition books recognize that everyone's made mistakes and that we're trying to fix it and what that looks like. So that was probably my, my biggest criticism on it. I, I also liked the idea of this is a group about harnessing history and anger where the the book is angry in a lot of places, but it, it makes sense. Like if you're talking about a group of magical practitioners tied to cultures, who's kind of gotten the short end of the stick throughout the 20th century, I can understand why you're mad. And finally, I, I very much like the theme of contrast of to what degree do we choose to modernize and to what degree do we choose to engage in the modern world? To me, that is almost a theme that should be baked into literally every tradition book as a fundamental question that the traditions asks itself, to what degree are we taking the fight to the technocrats? To what degree are we choosing to engage in the sleeper world? To what degree are we staying in our umbral realms, just refining our magic and pursuing ascension? And to me, this book brought that theme very front and center in a way that I don't recall other books doing. And I found that very refreshing. But otherwise, I feel like it's aged well, and I was very pleased to reread it. It seems like the dream speakers with their intimate knowledge of the Umbra would know more about these alien or harmful Umbrood that are coming into the world and doing bad things. And so they would be more, I, I just expected to see more mention of them saying, yeah, we, we're the ones who know about this, uh, this situation and we're the ones who are doing something about it. And I, I didn't really get that sense when I was reading through the book, but um, I guess that's a minor thing. You mean like Bane Spirits or the Kalawan when you say alien and bad? Both, really. I mean, okay. uh, there, there's a lot of mention of, um, you know, people ignore the spirits of the land. I, to, to me, the, the term spirits of the land is actually a, a term that I use when I'm talking to other mage fans. And the spirits of the land means like uh, the spirit of the bear or the deer or the spirit of the lake or the spirit of the forest. It's like spirits that are connected to natural phenomenon and are basically good and helpful things. They are naturally there and dream speakers look at them and say, yes, th these are spirits that I want to be in communication with. These are spirits that are legitimate. They should be here. And when they want something, they usually should get it. And then you have other spirits like the Kaluan or like just weird things that come out of uh, deeper regions of the Umbra and all they want to do is uh, grab some energy or hurt some people and, and run away. And dream speakers would know about these things and say, yeah, it, uh, since we're the ones who know so much about it, we're the ones who are doing something about it. And I didn't see a lot of that. Also, I see a potential conflict between um, older traditional ways of seeing things in the techno shamans. There's a bit of mention of it here, but but not a lot. I, I see a real potential for 
like a, a conflict between the dream speakers who say, you know, our, our older notions of what the spirits are is right and true and correct, and we should teach our young people that. And then you have the techno shaman saying, hey, the world has changed in the past hundred years, and now there's all these spirits here that were not here before, and we should learn about them and make re relationships with them and, and teach our new trainees about it. And so there, there's, I see potential for conflict there, but uh, wasn't a lot of mention of it. And also just the idea of the techno shaman. I, I thought that was really cool. I thought that was taking the idea of a shaman and saying, look, we have shamans now in the modern world, and that can be different from shamans in the world 500, 1000 years ago. I, I thought it was really cool that they put that in the book and, and brought attention to it. But, you know, minor nitpick of mine is, what can a techno shaman do that other dream speakers can't do? Or what can a techno shaman do that a virtual adept can't do? It, it would have been nice to take the, the magic chapter towards the end of the book and at least treat with that differently. It, even if you don't have hard and fast rules on it, it, at least have some mention of techno shamans have been known to do this and virtual adepts don't know how and wish they could do it or you know something along those lines. Let's see, Terry and I were talking a while back and I was joking about how the uh, dream speaker Primus in uh, Horizon Chantry probably has one of the rough jobs in the world. I would not want to be in his or her shoes. Uh, I say that because I can see a dream speaker Primus as being the head of a cohesive political faction called the dream speakers inside the uh, Council of Nine Mystic Traditions. But that person probably has a rough job because there are different cultural tribal groups uh, on earth who uh, get upset about something and they pull out of the dream speakers and say, we're not dream speakers anymore. And then you have, uh, I, I can see the potential for other groups saying, well, in the past we had a beef with this, but now now we're okay with it. So now we're going to, to join the dream speakers. And so uh, I just think it would be funny to have the, the player characters visit Horizon Chantry and, and see the dream speaker Primus sit down at a table and say, okay, who are the dream speakers this year? Who's in, who's out? Somebody, you know, tell me. And, and I feel like it's one of those things where, I, I, yeah, I would love to see a, a more thorough look into what it's like like trying to herd the cats that are ascend <laughs> awakened mages yeah. um, and how that's not the easiest thing on the face of the planet, but that's just material we don't get and they want to keep the space open. And I fully understand that. So Adam, do you have any uh, adventure ideas or any other uh, overall thoughts about the dream speakers? I just wanted to give a, a brief and, and rough uh, breakdown of paradigm for dream speakers. My approach to paradigm is, is a little more vague and loose than uh, some other mage fans who, who get uh, very detailed with it. My basic understanding for the past uh, many years has been uh, the basic idea here is humans don't have supernatural power. Spirits do have supernatural power. So dream speakers get spirits to do things for them. That's what that is what is basically happening in the understanding of dream speaker when they work magic. Animism is the idea that all observable things have a spirit, uh, all objects that you can actually look at and, and identify, like a tree or a bowl in your house or whatever, is going to have a spirit living within it, just naturally there. Dream speakers can communicate with those spirits. So striking an opponent with lightning involves asking a lightning spirit to strike the opponent for you, basically. Spirit 2 allows you to call a spirit to you for bargaining, so why not just use that for every effect? Well, rules-wise, a spirit may not come, may not cooperate, or may not be able to do what you want. In character, opening a new negotiation each and every time takes too long, so you rely on 
previous agreements, and that's where uh, you would come in and use the forces sphere to strike an opponent with lightning, but the dream speaker's understanding is they have a, a standing agreement with a lightning spirit that does that for them when they ask it to. In the beginning, the dream speaker believes the spirits come and do the effect for him, even though he can't see them. As he increases his erite, he believes the spirit bond is so close that the spirit, in effect, lets him use that spirit's power for it. At higher erite, he starts to think he's doing the effect himself. You could place a crisis of faith here where the dream speaker questions the validity of his beliefs at, at the higher erite. So I, one possible way to portray a dream speaker paradigm is to give the player lower difficulties in natural settings and higher difficulties in urban or high-tech settings. But of course, that is optional for, for those storytellers who want to deal with it more directly. Uh, and as for adventure ideas, I did have three I wanted to share with our listeners. Uh, number one, the players learn a mixed tradition chantry in a rural setting beside a mountain is having terrible problems. Local spirits are terrorizing initiates and damaging property. Chantry leaders have requested the help of other mages to raise spirit barriers and chase away Umbrood. The dream speaker player knows this will only make the problems worse and put an important chantry in jeopardy. Chantry leaders allow the players to try and solve the problem, but they must do it before the next half moon when an important ritual will take place. The players learn the spirit of the mountain is upset about the portal open to Horizon Chantry and the failure of each resident to perform the correct rituals to reside in its shadow. Can the players earn the goodwill of both the local spirits and the Chantry leaders in time to negotiate a solution? Idea number two. The mages of a Native American tribe are threatening to leave the dream speakers to focus on their own problems. Tom Laughing Eagle Smithson of Horizon Chantry sends the players to reservation land in Oklahoma to help the tribe. The syndicate is poisoning the tribe's culture with a casino and liquor sales, but it's a distraction. Not even the tribe's mages know the real problem is void engineers draining nodes on reservation land. The players must establish a relationship with the spirits of the land and fight the void engineers before the nodes are tainted. The tribe's mages don't trust outsiders, so it won't be easy. And idea number three, one storm after another tears through the umbra and portals between horizon realms are shattering. The players are pulled into rescue duty because of their knowledge of the spirit ways. As they help chantries, they learn the problems are coming from the middle umbra. Bane spirits and their minions are assaulting the Aetherian reaches. As the players deal with specific attacks, they'll increase their cosmology knowledge and spirit magic. As the crisis increases, the Council of Nine mobilizes. The players will be guides to help mages enter and operate effectively in the Middle Umbra. Players can become influential leaders among the traditions as they gather intel and deal with Bane spirits. The showdown will involve saving Lord Hyperion's stronghold from a concentrated assault. So those are three ideas. Uh, hopefully they'll give you fodder for better ideas of your own. And with that, I believe we are coming to the end of another episode of Tomes of Magic. And my quote of the episode is, Their wizardry confounds our ways, but new warriors among us have cultivated the spirits of plastic steel and electric pulse. Soon we will speak their language too, and the plastic cards and discs that shore up this hollow magic will be more useless than dust. Then we shall enact our revenge. I like that one. And now that we've reached the end of the episode, uh, contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn. You can also follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're on the web. Look for magethepodcast.com. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us continue to produce episodes. You would also become part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. Uh, the link in the show notes will get you started. This episode is thanks to executive producers uh, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, and Michael Parker. If you would like to become an executive producer for Made the Podcast, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Bye.